Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we dig up classic interviews from the archives and play the very best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward, with my friend, my co-host, and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Christopher, we're back. It's season number eight, and I could not be more excited. Here's the problem, though. Mm -hmm. We have a lot to live up to, because our last original episode that we did Mm -hmm. was actually a highlights show. It was the best stories that had ever been told on the show, including some new ones. So if you, the listener, are only going to listen to one show, first of all, (laughs) shame on you. Right. Second of all, make it that one. It's episode 709. It's our 100th episode, and it is spectacular, a lot of fun. We had a lot of feedback on it, including the story of our friend Brent, who did a live Skype interview not knowing that the camera was going to roll and he was shirtless in front of one of his rock heroes you need to listen to that (laughs) it was a funny moment wasn't it oh yeah hilarious my favorite though is the tears for fears one oh yeah the tears for fears one Mm -hmm. where roland orzabal of tears for fears does a sensational ringo star imitation it's so funny love that moment That that was my favorite absolutely so we've got a lot to live up to in this upcoming season and i gotta tell you it's going to be good we've got a new interview with uh keith richards and when i say new i mean new for us it goes back to 1993 we'll have that in the next few weeks we've got cindy lopper we've got something really big this week which we'll talk about in a sec but first i want to ask you a question okay Okay, and by the way, I have to go on record as saying I love this part of the show. It's kind of new, and it's yeah. a little more wide open and far-ranging than, yes. than some of the things we've done in the past, but have at it, bro. Okay, okay, I'm going to spring this on you a little bit, but if you had to put a song into a time capsule that would be opened in 100 years, what song would you pick? Well, thank you for not giving me any criteria whatsoever <laughs> to guide my choice. Right. I mean, immediately off the top of my head, imagine. Oh, yeah. Just because of how rich and how deep it is as a song and what it means. And I love its optimism. Yeah. You can't beat that. And you want to send the message to the future saying this is who we were. That's not a bad one. For sure. But I got to say, I don't think John Lennon and Imagine need my help getting... <laughs> Getting noticed by future generations. So I would I would say, how about Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come? Right. Hugely important song in the civil rights movement. And right at the very, very end of his career, very different musically from what he had done previously. A daring and just gigantic statement on behalf of this artist. Absolutely. Let's listen to that just for a sec. It's been a long From 1964, what a song. That's A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. And if I'm not mistaken, that was either number two or number three in the most recent Rolling Stone top 500 songs of all time. I think Respect was number one. I can't remember. Um, Maybe Like a Rolling Stone was number two, and I think A Change Is Gonna Come. It was either Like a Rolling Stone or Who Let the Dogs Out. I can't remember which. (laughs) But you know that you're right. The Sam Cooke song has grown in stature yes. over the years. Um, it's more sort of symbolic of things that, than it ever was. Yet yeah, Rolling Stone Top 5, Library of Congress recognized the song, and so many artists have reinterpreted it. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me take a swing at this. Please. From 
the rock era. And it's not necessarily my favorite song, but it is an epic. And it's also so diverse in the many genres that this one five minute and 55 second song encompasses. (laughs) There's your hint, by the way. (laughs) It's Bohemian Rhapsody. It starts, uh, you know, with that beautiful harmony, turns into a piano ballad, like a rock ballad. Then it goes into the opera part. And then this just kind of bizarre, you know, mama mia, the whole thing. And then into this heavy metal, just roaring part that brings it to a great climax. That song, if you heard that for the first time, you would say, how can this be one song? But most of all, I think it would expose you to so many different styles of music in one great package. It's a daring composition in so many ways. What I wonder is, if Queen didn't have any history before that, what would have happened with that song? Anything? Oh, so you mean they're an unknown band who hadn't had any hit singles. Right. I kind of think nothing would have happened with it. Yeah, me too. Because they wouldn't have gotten a fair shake. Sometimes who you are and your reputation will give you know momentum to a song like that. Tom, we've got a good one this week. We sure do. We're going to start with a 2003 interview with Sting and Marilyn Dennis. And Christopher, you have to admit, this interview <laughs> covers a lot of ground. Some of it very interesting. Some of it a little bit icky, I think, in your world. Some of it more ground than I ever needed to have covered, let's just say. It was also around the time of the whole tantric sex oh. discussion with Sting. You oh. don't even want me to say those words, do you? <laughs> so odious. Anyway, so that does become part of the discussion. And I think it is, I personally, to me, it's the highlight of the interview because it's so funny. That says so much, friends. <laughs> It says so much about the difference between you and I. Anyway, great interview. Sting with Marilyn Dennis from 2003, and I think you're going to love it. That's Sting Live from 1982 and a charity album for Amnesty International called The Secret Policeman's Other Ball. And of course, that's Roxanne, one of my favorite live performances ever captured. Wow. Fantastic. Tom, Sting has done it all. And he has the hits, the awards, the inductions, and the adulation that reveal a career as wide as it is deep. His musicianship, stellar. Mm -hmm. His songwriting, prolific. And he's created a body of work, the envy of any creator of pop music. And yet... (laughs) Wait a minute, there's a yet? (laughs) He is a man both adored and at times disdained. (laughs) This very entertaining and far-reaching interview with Marilyn Dennis from 2003, on the occasion of the release of Sting's seventh solo album, Sacred Love, will give you insight as to why he is both beloved and a divisive artist. Hmm. Marilyn is the master, Yeah, I don't need to tell you, and she manages to make Mr. Sumner sound more accessible, but it still sounds to me like he is tightly in control of the moment. This is a man who declares, I'm very happy to be me. (laughs) He does say that in this. Yes, he does. (laughs) I just thought I'd tee that up so people can look for it. Right. The interview starts with a story of a concert that Sting reluctantly gave on September 11th, 2001, in Tuscany. We've got to talk about this great album called 
sacred love. And, uh, you know, I know many, many interviews start when we talk about this CD, which is fantastic, by the way. Thank you. Is that the, you really started writing it on September 12th, after what had happened September 11th. You were giving a concert in Tuscany, were you mm -hmm. not? And uh, so how did you find out about what happened? Uh, I was rehearsing a show, for, it was my last show of the tour, and it would be a great a day to have a, a party, a celebration for the end of the tour right. and where better than my own home in Tuscany mm -hmm. with invited guests from all over the world, South mm -hmm. Africa, Australia, Canada, United States. And me, timing, I chose September the 11th. Mm -hmm. So um, we were all very happy and then the news came through around about 2 o'clock our time. Devastating news. Uh, a, a friend of ours had uh, died in one of the towers and yes. so the last thing I wanted to do on that particular evening was sing. Um, but I, being democratic, I put it to the band. I said, what, what do you want to do? They all wanted to play because they said that's how we express emotion. We want right. to play music. I said, I don't really feel like it, but uh, perhaps we'll do one song and then we'll ask the audience, who are all traumatized too, I imagine, mm -hmm. what they want. Um, so we, we did Fragile, which I thought was a, an appropriate song. Then we had a minute silence and then I asked what they wanted, the, and they, they all seemed to want some kind of uh, event, some kind of um, solace, you know, mm. some, some, Peace. some yeah. something yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. So we played the concert, not the concert we'd rehearsed, a little more somber, but I suppose as the evening wore on, we realized that uh, that's what we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Terrorism should not change our lives. That's what, it need, that's what it wants to do. So we should go the other way. So I'm glad we did it. They filmed it, but I've never seen the DVD. I don't really want to watch it. From 1988, what a song. That's Fragile and Sting. And you can just see how it would have been very difficult to play that concert right on September 11th, 2001. But you can also imagine how healing it would have been for both the audience and the band. And you know, he has enough songs that would kind of touch on kind of the sadness of that moment or the fragility of life, like that song, Fragile. It's a gorgeous song. And as he said in talking about how musicians respond to a moment like this, he said, that's how we express emotion. Mm -hmm. Here, Sting is asked by an audience member about his book, broken music. I recently read your book and the book was like listening to one of your songs. You mm -hmm. just write beautifully and uh, I'm wondering A, if you're ever going to write a sequel to that and if not, any plans to maybe go into novel writing because as I say, you're a beautiful, beautiful writer. Mm. The book is called Broken Music and it starts at your childhood up until well, the police, right? Mm. Uh, it it, it begins then and, and ends on the eve of the, the police mm -hmm. being successful. I felt I wanted to write um, a part of my life that has some perspective on. You know, I was, I was 50 when I started to write it. So the first 25 years, I could see the wood for the trees. I could see the resonant events, the people that I met that really had an impact on me, what, what happened to me. Whereas the 25 years that follow that, it's all, it's all a fog. I haven't really got enough perspective on it. So I, I'm not planning to do that at all. As for writing a novel, I'm not planning on being a brain surgeon either. I, I don't know. If, <laughs> I'm not sure if I could do it. 
Did you uh, said uh, that you kind of recommend everybody to write a book, whether or not it's published or not? It's it's great therapy. It's fantastic therapy. Yeah. I mean, you're forced to bring up stuff that you'd probably suppress normally. Mm -hmm. You know, memories that aren't particularly pleasant. Human beings, we tend to do that. We tend to lock them in the we cellar. Yeah. So when you write a book, you're forced to bring them out and try and um, understand them. And bringing things out into the light, actually, it may be painful at first, but after a while you feel... Uh, cleansed of them, you feel fr refreshed. What did you understand most about what you were angry about after you wrote this book? Oh, it was, it's about forgiveness. Yeah. And uh, about um, mainly forgiveness, mm -hmm. but uh, understanding your parents. I mean, I was writing about my parents who were very young. Mm -hmm. They were in their early 20s when I remember them. And as a 50-year-old man writing about your parents, mm -hmm. you become the parent to your parents because you can see why they behave the way they do and understand them and love them and be thankful for them because whatever they did made me as I am and mm -hmm. I, I don't regret that. Mm -hmm. I'm very happy to be me. I think that you'll find really interesting too that the title of the song Broken Music comes from your grandmother. You want to tell that story quickly before we go this to Kim on the broken phone? Broken Music was the phrase my grandmother used to describe my piano playing. <laughs> Good old Grandma Agnes. huh? She wasn't wrong. Great stuff. That's Staying with Marilyn Dennis from 2003. Still much more to come from that interview, including the behind-the-scenes story about that interview. And Christopher, I need you to tell me about the time that you ran into Sting at the Grammy Awards a number of years ago. This is a great story. Stick around for that. This is Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews from the archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. This week, a 2003 interview with Sting and Marilyn Dennis, and now we get a question from a listener. Kim is on the phone. Hello, Kim. Hi there. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you doing? Good. You got through. Would you like to ask Sting? Well, I'd like to, first of all, comment on um, an Oprah show that I saw with him and his wife. They were just sweetest, cutest, most adorable couple. You really are. Oh, and I, I would like to know what he would attribute to that success. The success of our marriage? Mm hmm Yes. Well, we've been together 23 years, which in showbiz terms is like five lifetimes. <laughs> uh, I think we're just deeply fortunate to have found each other, but um, both of us are, are committed to this idea that the, the people we married... Uh, the, the woman I married 23 years ago and the man she married are not the same people. We've, we've changed. We change year by year uh, and five year, in five-year intervals. We look, we're simply not the same people. We've allowed each other to evolve at the risk of evolving apart. And I, I think that's a, that's a paradox. If, if you allow someone to change mm -hmm. and not restrict them to being exactly the person you were when I married you, know, mm -hmm. I was like on the contract mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. Then somehow it, it, it deepens the relationship. And she's allowed me to evolve too. And, and so I don't feel as if I'm restricted in any way. She allows me total freedom to think and be as I am. And I adore her for it. Okay, Christopher, I know you find Sting insufferable, and I get that. But <laughs> I'm absolutely all in on this interview. I think he's forthcoming, and he's charming, and with a guy like that, they could be very frosty, but I actually think he's not in this one. I think he's really warm. Uh, but yes, 
There is a certain self-satisfied smugness to this whole thing, isn't there? It's funny, you know, I think he knows that he comes across that way, and I think he makes a genuine effort to be charming. Yes. And it at times succeeds. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. But you can tell the audience is eating from the palm of his hand with every word he's saying. Oh, those are the hardcore aficionados yes. in that crowd. Yeah. So let me tell you how this whole interview went. It was done in 2003 at a place called the Bravo Rehearsal Hall. You know the building it was in because it's the old Much Music building. Right. Okay. And Marilyn Dennis is on site with Sting. Marilyn and I have prepped for this interview. I've helped write some questions And then Marilyn and I discuss them so she can put them into her own words. And then she writes a whole bunch more questions than I do because she's the one doing the interview. And I'm back at the studio. So I did not meet Sting. Like I've seen Sting in concert seven, eight times. And I didn't get to meet him in person because I'm back in the studio pressing all the buttons, making sure everything's running properly. I'm in Marilyn's headphones saying, you know, we've got two minutes here. Uh, keep it tight or you've got lots of time, ask him whatever you want here because we've got a good seven, eight minutes here, that kind of thing. So that's the background of this, uh, of this particular interview. Very interesting. Yeah. As you know, I did meet Sting. Yes, you did. <laughs> you did. All Sorry, right, let me, took I'm me gonna, a second. I, I'm going to have to remind you now. Grammys. Okay, we're at the Grammys. Yes. And Alana won her Grammy. And uh, it was at the um, Radio City Music Hall. And we had this little tiny table uh, where, you know, sort of near the dance floor. So, uh, and people were coming by to say hello to her and introduce themselves and so on. And Sting came up and he, was, and he came up and he looked her straight in the eye, completely ignored me and said, hello, Alana, I'm Sting. <laughs> we're, we're sitting there going, yeah, no shit, you know. <laughs> and we didn't say anything. And he goes, I admire your music. And then he just swings, you know, yes. <laughs> like swings to like the right 40, away. <laughs> 45 degrees and just through the crowd oh like a God, knife through butter. Great. You know? <laughs> but what happened, of course, is once he was like a good 50 yards away, the two of us just exploded in <laughs> laughter like a couple of children. <laughs> okay. So back to this interview, this point, Sting tells a really interesting story about a very close call. Let us talk just quickly about it. Maybe 21 months ago, you're um, near Miss, the Florence Airport. Okay, and uh, the, uh, the not almost making not making the runway. Actually, you had an airplane crash. And did that have anything to do with stuff that you wrote on this album as well? I hadn't thought about it. It yeah. was an interesting experience. I Can don't you tell want us about relive. that experience? It's when you took the seatbelt off that really I wasn't sure what you were thinking when you did that. But can we talk about what was happening? Uh, well, we, we did actually land, but um, there was a small plane, and the right. pilot turned around and said, we haven't got any brakes, and uh, <laughs> we've got no um, reverse power to slow the thing down. I often wondered how, how long it would take a plane to, to stop if you just did that. Now I know. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a long runway, and uh, I sort of left my body, I think. I was up here watching the watching the event happen. I wasn't afraid actually. I was kind of interested. Did you not like did you not unbuckle your seatbelt? I did, but it was like it was like this for some reason. Okay. So when uh, when the plane hit the end of the the fence and went through the fence, all the stuff came the luggage and everything came behind me. It was the most violent thing I've ever been in. And I just slipped down <laughs> to my no, no. Yeah, down to my neck. Uh oh. I was very relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> it's that yoga. <laughs> But 
But, you know, a lot of people, when they're major, like, near misses, they say it's all slow motion. Was it slow it motion? Is, is really it really? slow motion. I was thinking, well, where's the best place to be when we crash and, you know, looking around? It's a long time to figure it out. Oh, well. So you get off the plane. You walk away. And I was the first one out. Actually, cool. I, I, I opened the, <laughs> the emergency door. There were no women and children on the plane. <laughs> I got out. Okay, you got on your cell phone and you called your lovely wife, Trudy. I called Trudy. I said, listen, on the internet, in 20 minutes, there's going to be a picture of me in a broken plane, but I'm alive. And sure enough, 20 minutes later, there it was. But you were laughing. I was laughing. I don't know why I was laughing. I just felt relief, I suppose, that we yes. survived. Yeah. Oh, I cannot imagine taxiing down a runway knowing that your plane has no brakes. <laughs> Boy. No, that's... That's more horror than you need in your life. Yeah, I think I'd be feeling relief when it was over as well. Boy. Yeah. Well, he sounds pretty calm in hindsight. Yes. But who knows in the moment, right? But you know, I think it's actually kind of sweet that he thought, okay, we're fine, but this is going to be on the internet in 20 minutes. I better call Trudy now. Yeah, that was a touching moment, wasn't yes. it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tom, still more to come with our Sting interview, including his feud with Rod Stewart. <laughs> this is Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. We are in the middle of a 2003 chat between Sting and Marilyn Dennis. Yep, and in a little while, Marilyn gets to the bottom of the whole tantric sex thing with Sting. <laughs> and let's just say it heats up the room a little bit. But that's a few minutes away. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, here an audience member asks the classic question, which is where do you see yourself in the future? What I wanted to ask you is where do you see yourself in 10 years from now? Well, I'll be 62 10 years from now. Um, I hope I'm still sexy. <laughs> I, um, Remember, we're getting older, too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine um, living without playing music. Yeah. Uh, I really can't. I can't imagine living without, you know, without breathing or, or eating. Mm -hmm. So music is, is very much, you know, meat and drink for me. But... Um, and I've been very lucky in, in my career that, that what I've wanted to do in music has coincided largely with popular taste. So I've been fortunate there. There may be a time when it doesn't, when the music I want to do doesn't do that. And people go, oh, I don't quite understand that. I'm not going to buy this latest album. I will still be making music because I always say this to people who ask me, well, how do you make it? I want to make it. I say, that's really not important. What is important is you play music because it nourishes your spirit. And it will do that whether you play to 10 people mm -hmm. or 10,000 people or even the cat. Music will still nourish you. Easy for me to say, but it's true. And so in 10 years' time, whether or not I have an audience, I don't know that. I won't assume that. I'll still be playing music for my own spiritual nourishment. No, we're happy about that. Good. We're happy about that. Which brings me to this question. You know, uh, let's take the sting of 2000 and go back to the sting of 1978. Do we have to? Yeah, for a moment. Just, like, what advice would you give the sting of 1978? Um, well, the sting of 1978 did survive until 2003, so he couldn't have done things that wrong. Um, but there was a, a core of ha uh, unhappiness, too. I think so. I, I was processing a load of pain. Mm. I was the king of pain, after all. Yes, I know. 
I um, know. <laughs> and in a way, it was useful that I, that, that I could channel that into, into yeah. music and into songs. But I, I began to identify with my pain and think that that really was me, when in fact it's not me. Mm. It, that, that's an illusion. You're not really pain. It's um, what you have to do to develop is, is separate yourself from it. Say, so, well, I'm, that's not really not me. I'm now happier now because I'm not identified with the pain. Interesting, too, that you, you had said that uh, getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was a little bit too early. You wish that they would have waited another 10 years mm. because it was 25 years. They were celebrating the fact that, you know, your music has been on the charts for that long. Why did you want, why would you have wanted them to wait another 10 years to give you because that Because maybe in 10 years' time I'll be more sentimental and nostalgic about those years. It's too close. Mm -hmm. uh, on the same night, uh, the Righteous Brothers were, were inducted. We, we, we lost Bobby Hatfield yes, the other day. Did. It was mm -hmm. great, sad, very sad. But when they, when they played You Lost That Loving Feeling, and it was 35 years ago, that was exactly right. It was such a warm thing. When we played, I thought it was yesterday that the police finished. Mm. So I didn't feel that warmth. And it would be another four years before the police would reunite again. And it was a monster. By the way, that tour kicked off in Vancouver. It hit Edmonton and Ottawa and Toronto and Montreal twice on different legs of the tour. I saw one of those shows. All over North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Australia, a tour that grossed more than $360 million U.S. I noticed, by the way, in uh, responding to the uh, Sting moments that you, you didn't touch on the I hope I'm still sexy moment. Oh, I know. I know. He's really playing to the crowd. And it is a very strong female audience in that. Really? I'm yeah. so surprised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is an interesting story, I think, Tom. This is how Sting took a circuitous route to get one of his songs heard. Okay, we're going to go to Desert Rose now. Let's go. Okay. By the way, it's from 1999's Brand New Day, which, by the way, is the CBS Morning News theme. Ka-ching, making money off of that one. <laughs> I've got six kids. Every day, the man is making money. He's making money right now. Uh, you got one kid. How expensive it is. Oh, I know how expensive it is. You got it. You got it. Uh, one thing about Desert Rose that uh, was said about you is that you went to... This was, a, this was a piece of music that people said was never going to be a hit. And that you took it upon yourself to go to all the gatekeepers. And you, you provided them with this song, which eventually ended up... For, and a car commercial, which is really, in another era, that would have been like, you know, what the heck is he doing? So let's talk about that a little bit and why you decided to do that. You, instead of people coming to, uh, to you, you went to the people. Well, I, I wrote this song, and I thought it was an important song, because it, it, it was a duet with an Arab singer called mm -hmm. Cheb Mami. Yeah. I, I don't believe a successful song, is, a duet, has ever been done this way. It began with him singing in Arabic, and the radio people said, forget it. You can't have an Arabic singer on, on North American radio. Yeah. You're crazy. Right. I said, yes, but it's, it's important. It's a hit song. You listen to it. Um, and so the, they shut the gate on me. And so we made a video, and it, it, it had a, a Jaguar car in it by accident, I promise you. <laughs> and um, Jaguar saw it and said, oh, we'd like to use that as our commercial. Um, which meant that we would get some exposure. The song then immediately was played on the radio and was a huge hit. It is still in the charts 200 weeks later. That's amazing. 250 weeks later. That's amazing. 
It, uh, it was a hit all over the world. It was a hit in all the Arabian countries. It hit in Israel, huge hit in Israel. And for me, it says that basically we are, we are all one family. All this idea that we're separate races, creeds, nations. I'm sorry, it's an illusion. Music shows us that we can work together and, and be family. So I thought it was an important song. from the year 2000 and Desert Rose, a great song and a great story of what Sting did to get that song on the radio. Hmm. What do you think of that? That whole circuitous route, as you called it, to get his song noticed. I think it's valid, but, you know, validity is like anything else in the eye of the beholder. Um, And as I think you've pointed out in the past, um, there was a phase when it would be artistic suicide to allow your song to be used in a commercial, but there was a moment where that just seemed to change overnight, and it was beyond acceptable. It was an avenue to reach audiences when it was getting tough to do so. Yeah. Um, I asked George Harrison about the use of something in a car commercial, and I could tell it kind of made him recede for a moment. I waited till later in the interview. <laughs> and um, he, he was sort of dismissive of it, but you could tell that it still made him uncomfortable. And that wasn't my idea. I was kind of just curious to know how it happened. I actually thought that maybe his songs had been in the same situation as Lennon McCartney's songs where they were outside of his control. Right, apparently by Sony and Michael Jackson, that kind of thing. Yeah, but apparently he okayed the use. Oh, I see. Yeah. It is interesting because that is, I actually agree with everything he said in that clip that it was kind of a world music type of sound. Right. And it was so well performed And then when it got on the radio, we didn't, you know, it wasn't a single for the longest time. And when it got on the radio and we played it, it sounded incredible. Like it was just one of those songs that sounded current, but it sounded big and it sounded worldly. It was a great way of doing it because the song wasn't getting any attention before then. Okay, let's keep going now with our 2003 interview with Sting and Marilyn Dennis. Oh, those trickster rock stars. (laughs) (laughs) Let's call this another edition of When Rock Stars Attack. You still good friends with Rod Stewart after the comments he made a couple you know, of weeks ago? Rod Stewart and I have a history going way back. I think Rod's a fantastic artist. Yes. Really, he deserves a Grammy. He does. And I'm going to send him one of mine. Are you? <laughs> you know, we're taking a look at all your awards and all the stuff that you have. There are seven pages of awards and things. I thought you could give up one of them for you. Absolutely. But, uh, but that's not all about these two, because these two, you play games with each other. Did you not padlock his gate to his house or something? Did, I mean, you are constantly at each other. I it's love fun, Rod. Huh? I love Rod Stewart. I really <laughs> yeah, do. You do. But, you know, he, he did, he did um, leave me a, me a very rude message one day on an aeroplane. Yes. Car- he carved the message into, into a into table. Into the table, yes. I won't repeat it because it's a family show. But, um, you know, B- Billy, who's my, my assistant, decided um, we had to get him back. So we, <laughs> we went. He was playing Lake Tahoe, I think. Uh-huh. And we, was com- we knew he was coming back that night on the plane. And so um, we chained his uh, gate up with an industrial chain. It was one of the you know, pillars and a sliding electric door. <laughs> and he couldn't, he couldn't get into his house for five hours. 
Did you sign it? Did you sign it, or did he, did he left, know it was you? Well, he called me string in, in the thing, so I left a piece of string in the nice. Oh. <laughs> great story. That's great. So he, he knew who it was. That's when rock stars attack Rod Stewart versus String. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> No self-awareness at all, no. right? No, no. <laughs> Tom, Sting did a collaboration with Mary J. Blige that resulted in a great song and another Grammy Award. Whenever I say your name, a duet by Mary, uh, with you and Mary J. Blige. This is a great story. You met Mary J. about four years ago at the MTV Music Awards. Mm -hmm. And you sang, If You Love Somebody, Set Them Free, together, which was a great performance. And you said, I resolve that I'm going to write a song that is going to involve Mary J. Blige. That was four years ago. Mm. Now we've got the song Whenever I Say Your Name. How great is that? I, I love Mary J. from the moment I, I sang with her because she's such a tough lady with this an incredible, passionate voice. She really is the, you know, the crown princess of, of soul. And underneath that toughness is this wonderful, vulnerable, tender girl. And I love that combination. It's very compelling. And so I thought, I, I, I really want to sing with her again, and I want to write a song. So I, I came up with this idea, this kind of religious idea, that every time I say your name, I'm, I'm praying. And I, I sent her the song, praying that she would like it, and she called back and said she'd love to do it. I think it's going to be our next single. Yes, that, I hope so, because it's um, I'd love it to be a hit, because I'd like to do TV with her. You say you're not an emotional singer, that you just sing the melody. Mm. You say, I'm English, I'm not bursting into tears. You say, Mary lives every note. Mm. A combination of Bach and gospel. I think it's, it's the difference between um, a method actor and somebody who just acts. Uh, I think um, North Americans tend to be very good method actors. Mm -hmm. The British aren't very good at it. We just say the words and we wear the frocks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I trust as a composer that, that I can express the emotion through the melody right. and through the, the... I do not need to live the part. Okay. I really feel that. If I do live the part, I'll lose control of it. Um, Mary, like on it. the other hand, is a completely different creature. And she, this she lives every note. There you go. That's Sting and Mary J. Blige and Whenever I Say Your Name from 2003. Two very good artists, but that song really didn't do much. And I think that's kind of what happened to Sting's music kind of from that point. It drifted too far away from pop to remain accessible. Anyway, those are just my thoughts. It's my recollection that he did an album that the label turned down and he had to go back and write a song that became the single from that album mm. and it launched it to big success. Is there a song called Let's Get Together or something like that? Or uh, Well, there's a song, uh, We'll Be Together. That's the one. What's oh, that? Is it a double was, album? Yes. Yes, it is. It's uh, Nothing Like the Sun. Yeah. So that was his second solo album, mm -hmm. We'll Be Together. And I've got him, not in this interview, telling the story about how We'll Be Together was actually like a Japanese cola commercial that he wrote. And then when, I guess when the record company asked him for a hit song, he goes, I don't really have anything. He goes, oh, I have this kind of jingle that I've written. So he turned that into a song, We'll Be Together. 
He's a resourceful man, Tom. He certainly is. And it's nice to know that he has that many songs and memorable hooks in his pocket that he can just pull that one out and tack yeah, it on. Yeah, I know. You know? And that was a great album, by the way. His best oh, yeah. solo work. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. We have lots more to come, including an unforgettably spicy moment between Sting and Marilyn. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. This week, a very in-depth 2003 chat with Sting and Marilyn Dennis. Now, if you're a big fan, we also have more in episode 505 with interviews from Sting and Stuart Copeland from the early 80s. This is an interesting story about Sting's songwriting technique. I'm going to go back to the CD now, Sacred Love, and there's a great song on it. I love the song. It's called Stolen Car. Can you tell me what the song means? Okay. When I, when I write a song, I write the music first. I structure the music. Uh, I believe that if, if, the, if the music is structured correctly, it already is telling you a story. It has a narrative shape. So then I take, I take a tape of the music out and I walk in the woods, say, in, where I'm in Italy. I walk to the lake and I walk back. And um, just I free associate. And I hear a, a line or I, I, a character emerges, something like that. When I took this song to the lake... On the way back, there were four characters trying, struggling to be in this song. Huh. One was a car thief who's a psychic. This um, is from a walk to the lake. Whenever he, whenever he steals his car, right. car right. he imagines the people who own the car and what's gone on in the car. The other character was the man who owns the car, a very wealthy man, a company director. He's very, you know, he has a girlfriend. A mistress. He has a mistress. She's been in the car too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has a wife and two kids. Which you plan. So they're all explain. in the car. Yes. And the guy's still in the car. And as he's driving along, smell or there's some cologne in the air, he imagines the story of what's been going on in the car. So it's like a little mini soap opera. Great story by Sting about creating a song. But yes, he does have to mention that he's walking to the lake near his home in Italy while he's telling the story. Yeah, and you sort of imagine somebody with a tea tray 20 paces behind. <laughs> is that cruel? Is that wrong? Yes, it is, but it's fitting. Thank you. Here, Marilyn fires a bunch of rapid-fire questions at Sting. We're going to do a little rapid-fire. What's your name? Is it Gordon or is it Sting? Well, my parents called me Gordon, but they didn't know me at the time. So <laughs> the people who called me Sting actually knew me, and it suited me for a long time. Yeah. Now I can't get rid of it. It's no, just, you can't get name. rid of it. But your passport and everything says uh, Gordon on it, It right? does. Yeah. It does have Gordon. The thing that most irritates Trudy about you? <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to really have to ask Trudy about that. I'd love to talk to Trudy yeah. sometime. I'll get her on the phone. Hang on. You want to call her right now? Trude. Trude. <laughs> no, she's not yeah, even. when you call her in the middle of the night and it's in a different country. Okay. How are you being a former teacher at parent-teacher meetings? <laughs> Luckily, I'm always on tour with <laughs> So she does that, huh? She does. She yeah. does that. But the kids are all good academically? They're very good, yeah. Sting, does older mean wiser? Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> no? Not necessarily? Not necessarily, no. I think you can get dafter as you get older. <laughs> but uh, I, th I think you have to work on getting wiser. What's the best advice you ever got? Work hard. Pay off big time for mm. you. Yeah. When did you realize you were really famous? Um, it happened gradually. Um, 
you know, incrementally, person by person. It wasn't like one day suddenly everything blew up. I, I, and I was also quite old. I was 26 or 27 when I was famous, so I coped with it. It wasn't such a phenomenon for me. I, didn't, I never took it seriously. What's the most important thing you've learned about women? That I will never get to the bottom of you. <laughs> Gosh. Well, that's why you're so fascinating, you see. It's an ever-receding mystery. Yeah. Well, I tell you, we women love you. There's no doubt about that. You love Canada. I do love you Canada. You do, yes. I have a big relationship with Canada. I mean, Canada's the reason why I have a guitar. My uncle emigrated here to Toronto in 1958, and he left me his guitar. So thank you, Canada. <laughs> Great stories there from Sting, and you can tell the audience just loves him. And at this point in his career, he's so well-known and legendary, he's actually bigger than just his music at this point, I would venture to say. Okay, so I love this last clip because it's so playful, but I don't think that you, Christopher, feel the same. He appears to be leaving. Okay, so you be the judge. Uh, Sorry, I'll be right. Can you handle this without me? Okay, go. All right, go ahead. Okay, he's gone. So you be the judge as Marilyn addresses the whole story about Sting and tantric sex. When we last left off, we were talking about tantric sex, just in case you're tuning in. (laughs) And what a great relationship you have with Trudy, and and it is for sure. There was a comment that you had made that um, you could make love for eight hours. You apparently were with uh, Sir Bob Geldof. And you said you exaggerated a little. And this is the quote I have. Sting says, and I quote, I think I mentioned to Bob I could make love for eight hours. What I didn't say was that this included four hours of begging, then dinner, and a movie. (laughs) Is is that the correct thing to... Trudy was not happy with that comment. She wasn't, because I saw her hesitating with you and almost, in fact, taking over in the Oprah interview. She was going, wait a minute. She didn't like that idea. She didn't like that idea. She explains it better than I do, but it's it's really exploring levels of intimacy before sex. Okay. And to to make a, a night of it, you know, you can look at each other for hours on end and just, you know, discover things about each other just by contact of the eyes. Massage or running a bath. He's looking at me right now. I am looking at <laughs> Let me know when I'm having an orgasm. <laughs> so you let me know. <laughs> oh my gosh, I just forgot my son's in the front row. Anyway, anyway. Is it over yet? Is, is it safe to come back in oh, the studio? Oh my God, Christopher, it was such a great clip. And the ending where Marilyn realizes that her very young son is in the front row while they're having that discussion. By the way, I sent that clip to Marilyn and her son just the other day. <laughs> and Adam, who is a radio morning man now in Toronto, huge show. He, he literally works on an opposing morning radio show against his own mom. Oh, no. Right? In the same building. He remembers that really well and how what a thrill it was to be in the front row while his mom was interviewing Sting. This is Famous Lost Words and time for one of our very favorite segments called Cool Song Facts. Tom, during the making of The Joshua Tree, Bono missed his wife's birthday. So to make it up for her, 
Aww, <laughs> he wrote the song Sweetest Thing. She liked it, no surprise, right? But she yeah. also asked that the royalties go to a charity for the children of the Chernobyl disaster. The song did not make the Joshua Tree album, but became a big hit about 10 years later when it was re-recorded for a best of album. From 1998, U2 and The Sweetest Thing. That was kind of an important song for them because it brought them back up the charts for the first time in quite a while and led the way for their success two years later with that great song, Beautiful Day. Okay, Christopher, let's keep going with more cool song facts. Tom, Stevie Wonder co-wrote a number of hits, including Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I Was Made to Love Her with His Mother. What? She even earned a Grammy nomination for Signed, Sealed, Delivered, right? She also negotiated... Stevie's first deal with Motown. Wow, that mm-hmm. is cool. I don't know too many artists who would sit down and go, okay, mom, let's write a song. <laughs> and then they get they become big hits and earn Grammy nominations. I love it. Okay, yeah. okay, I've got one for you that's kind of similar, okay? So in 1980, the Oscar for best song was from the movie Fame. And it was written by a guy named Michael Gore. Right. And it was up against another song from Fame called Out Here on My Own, co-written by Michael Gore and his sister, Leslie Gore. You know what, you know what song of hers I just love is You Don't Own Me. What a great song that oh, was. Oh, great song. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of one of the very first female empowerment songs. And it's been used over and over. And of course, Leslie Gore's first big hit, I think, was It's My Party. Great song yeah. and a great vocal. That's for sure. And I think yeah. that stuff... Okay, Christopher, here we go. TJ versus the VJ. Who produced many of Leslie Gore's hits? I have no idea. That would be Quincy Jones. Ew. The Q. (laughs) Okay. So, Christopher, I've got something for you here, okay? When Steven Tyler decided to become a judge on American Idol, Joe Perry started looking for Steven's replacement because he was not amused by that choice. And his first choice to replace Steven Tyler was Sammy Hagar. Now, this is after Sammy, this is well after Sammy replaced David Lee Roth in Van Halen, right? All right. Just straighten me out here. I don't get it. Why would anybody choose Sammy Hagar to do anything? (laughs) Please. Illuminate. Okay. Well, he is a skilled vocalist. Like, he is a good rock singer. It's just he's kind of generic. Yeah, do you think? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it is funny because I've been reading a little bit on Van Halen history. And in the mid 80s, when David Lee Roth left, Van Halen knew, particularly Eddie knew, that they needed a new direction. It had to be more of a kind of a heavy pop sound than a hard rock sound. And so when Sammy joined, it was kind of the right choice at the right time, not for me as an original Van Halen fan, but as far as chart success, they did very well in the Sammy years. Okay, Christopher, it gets worse, okay? <laughs> I can't imagine. Oh, yeah. After Jerry Garcia died, yeah. Bob Weir asked a pretty famous guy to join the Grateful Dead as guitarist and singer, and that was Sammy Hagar as well. Stop now. Stop. <laughs> this is just... This is painful. <laughs> oh, it, I know. It, no, okay, Bob Weir was asleep when that happened. He was talking <laughs> in his sleep. He didn't know what he was saying. 
It's a terrible mistake, and he, and he wants to take it back on our show, okay? Yes. Let's, I honestly, like, I really do vet the facts on Cool Song Facts, but I honestly hope that one is not true, that somehow <laughs> it's everywhere as fact, but I hope that one's not true. All right. It is our responsibility, henceforth, to go and look this baby up, okay? All right. Tom, the Elvis Costello song, Allison, great song, recorded in 1977. He didn't have a band at the time, so he used a group that was called Clover, which was also the band that eventually became the news, as in Huey Lewis and the News. (laughs) No, (laughs) Huey, by the way, was not featured on Allison. (laughs) His name was not true. (laughs) Okay, here's the last one, okay? Yeah. Christopher, remember this song, Handyman by Jimmy Jones? Yeah. That's Jimmy Jones from 1959 and Handyman. Okay. In the 1980s, Jimmy, Jimmy Jones, who co-wrote that song, apparently tried to sue Culture Club because of this song. So you hear that, that's Culture Club from about 1983-84 and Karma Chameleon. And Boy George said he'd probably heard the song Handyman once before, but he did not copy it. And by way of a settlement, Boy George says they gave Jimmy Jones 10 pence and an apple. (laughs) That's hilarious. Oh, my. Now, had the uh, James Taylor version been out by then? Oh, yeah. So James Taylor would have been, what, in the 70s. And so Boy so, George yeah, would have heard that, wouldn't he? You're right. You're right. He would have. So maybe George doesn't have a leg to stand on. An, an apple to chew on. Exactly. Okay, there you go. Cool song facts on Famous Lost Words. That's it for this week. Another award winner. Christopher, your sarcasm is not welcome here. <laughs> <laughs> Famous Lost Words was produced by my co-host, Tom Jokic, executive producer, Sarah Cummings. You can binge more than 100 past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.